Hello, everyone. This is Uriel Epstein with Winter Is Here. So today we have a special episode where we will have an opportunity to get a sense of what is happening directly on the ground in Kiev. And our guest today was someone whom originally I'd hoped to speak with over the weekend, but as I'm sure you can imagine, the situation on the ground changes day by day. And so instead of doing it on the weekend, we're doing it now at 9 a.m. Eastern time on Monday. And so my guest today is Oleksandr Hein, a colonel in the Ukrainian military who has been in the army since July 14th of 2000. Welcome, Colonel. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. So thank you again so much for joining us. I mean, obviously, you're in the middle of an active war zone. How are you doing? How's your family? So uh, I'm married with two kids. And uh, my wife, she's an officer as well. And currently she lives and operates with uh, her unit. So like me personally, I operate with my unit. So like we are separated for since 24th of February. When uh, the situation was uh, extremely tough, uh, we evacuated uh, to our kids. So like I've got a daughter in the age of 14 and a son of age of seven. Like we have evacuated them and now they are with their grandparents in the Western Ukraine. And uh, we are here in Kiev. We have like little chances to meet up. Like uh, since 2024th of February, we had like two, we, we met two times just uh, to say hello to each other. Do you get a chance to talk to them over the phone or Zoom or something like that? Yeah. So like I try to reach out my kids every day either via phone or messengers just uh, to see their faces because I miss them a lot. Oof. So you yourself, though, you're based in Kiev right now. Correct. And when you look outside, I mean, I don't know if you get a chance to walk around Kiev, but what do you see? Kiev is a huge city and some parts of the city, especially that uh, lay in the closest vicinity of Auskirt, probably those parts, uh, like districts, they are destroyed. But right now I'm in the uh, believed to be not downtown, but central part of cave. And uh, it's pretty much safe and not damaged. A few days ago, we had a rocket flying over and it was shut down by our anti-missile system and it was shut down nearby. But uh, I believe that it didn't cause any big damages and destructions. So day and nights in Kiev, they differ extremely. We have uh, this uh, martial law introduced and uh, uh, like uh, streets are uh, empty after... 20 hours and like right now i'm very close to the central railway station like uh, since 24th of february it's uh, full of people people come people evacuate from kiev and of course this particular district seems to be not deserted entirely but people flee from city and that's very upsetting I was in Kiev in 2013. I visited for a few weeks. I was translating with an organization. And my mother originally is from Kiev. And and I was impressed by how much of a modern European city it is. I mean, I remember seeing, you know, there were malls everywhere. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. Are those structures still standing? Are, Are people able to go out and actually shop for food or basic necessities? 
So like uh, when I come out, I see people actually pulling their uh, travel bags everywhere. In downtown, in the remote districts, everywhere, people with the, like, and uh, that's a sign for me that uh, people who come out of their uh, homes, uh, they just uh, in attempts of, of uh, moving somewhere away. In the shops, the situation so far is okay. So the most of big supermarkets, they are opened and you can buy at least the basic goods like bread, like water, eggs, or meat. You can buy almost everything. And what is very surprising that people are very friendly. So everybody understands the situation. And even a few days ago, when I was in the line to the cashier, I witnessed a situation when a lady didn't have her credit card to pay for the goods. And she asked whether she could exchange like someone to pay in cash and someone would pay with the credit card and she would uh, return money in cash. And like everybody was extremely supporting and offering uh, the opportunity to assist her. So like this is a very good sign that people are scared. Of course, uh, it's very uncomfortable, but still uh, they remain to be people. Wow. And what you're describing is a community that's still able to function despite not just, you know, an immediate threat of war, but the actual existence of war on a day-to-day basis. You mentioned that sort of the days and the nights are very different. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about what the experience is at night when everybody has to be sheltering, when folks have to get off the street. What's that experience like? This is the current regulation doesn't allow people walk around the city. So only ones uh, who possess a special pass can ride a car around. And that's it. No walking around during nights. During days, people walk around, people drive cars. Of course, a lot of the block posts uh, installed uh, around the city, just not allowing to speed up and uh, any sabotage groups to penetrate the city in the like short notice. So really quickly, so you mentioned sabotage groups, and I'm not sure if our listeners are going to be entirely familiar with what those are. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the sabotage groups are and what they're doing inside of Kiev or trying to do inside of Kiev. So actually, it happened a few days ago, nearby, like 500 meters from here. I'm located uh, in the closest vicinity with the military installations, and uh, sabotage groups tried to penetrate the city from that direction and to target the uh, military facilities. So they burned a few cars and shoot it at the barracks where the soldiers lived. So the sabotage groups, that's the groups of the people, like the number of, pe- of, of people in the sabotage groups uh, differs. It might consist of three or even over a 10 of them. And usually with the well-maneuvered cars equipped with uh, light arms and their target is uh, just to scare people around, just to make people feel uncomfortable and maybe take over some of the administrative buildings just um, to let other troops to come over to have strong calls. And these sabotage groups, so they are Russian soldiers, but they're not wearing uniforms. Is that right? They are in uniforms. They are. 
Yeah. Everyone, like, what differs uh, this particular war between Russia and Ukraine with the war that was taking place in Donbass, that in Donbass uh, they concealed, they didn't uh, wear their uniform or didn't have any IDs or documents that could identify themselves as Russians. And today they are like extremely persistent and they try to use the uniform as another psychological pressure over people, saying that hey, see Russian boots on the ground. Wow, okay. So how many of these sabotage groups are in Kiev right now, do you think? That's not that they are in Kiev and hiding somewhere. It's just that uh, in the attempt of uh, to size Kiev in the first days of the war, some of them penetrated the city. Some of them just came to the city. They managed to do that. But today, I believe that the city itself pretty much safe due to the high activity of police and territorial defense forces who monitor, who actually guard the city, who monitor the situation, and all the suspicious people taken by them and checked out on their, actually, to be the Ukrainians or the citizens of some foreign countries working for Russia. So, unlike many of the people who have taken up arms in defense of Ukraine, you've been in the military for over 20 years. And over the course of your military career, you've been through at least two revolutions, the Orange Revolution in 2004 and the Revolution of Dignity in 2015, which started out of Maidan Square. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how your experiences have changed over time, over the last 20 years. I mean, those were some pretty significant shifts. This is a very difficult question, and I can tell only through my personal experience. I saw bad times. In the military, I saw extremely bad times in the military, and I'm lucky that I was a witness of a renaissance in the military. When I was an officer cadet, it was a, a, a huge fall in the military, so a cut of finance, a cut of personnel, and uh, um, like uh, the country barely could manage even uh, to feed us. Later on, it was getting better and better until Yanukovych came to the military. And I do remember clearly, like I was a public affairs officer in the city of Rivne, and I was covering a visit by the minister of defense, Salamatin, who was actually reviewing the troops across Ukraine, estimating what was to be disbanded and what was to be kept. And I clearly remember when he was visiting a military hospital in the city of Rivne, he was demanding the military facility to be turned into a kind of a business uh, medical installation, saying that everybody should make money for own existence. And can you imagine the time when uh, in the late uh, 2013, Salamatin was trying actually to sell the equipment from the storages that were installed across Ukraine. And in the Rim region, we had storage of trucks, like the real trucks, and all that equipment was planned to be sold. In the sudden, uh, uh, the revolution began. And the plans were not put uh, into practice, so they were not utilized. The renaissance of the military was after 2014, 
and everybody turned to the military. We received a huge support from the public, from the politicians. We received good budgeting and, of course, the support from the international community who provided us with the access to the modern equipment. So even the uniform turned to be like a comfortable, well-suited. I, I feel like much better in this kind of uniform. So like this is a very modern, well-looking, like professional military uniform. Yeah, I think people underestimate the impact that a nice, good, comfortable uniform can have. I wonder what role do you think the Russian invasion of 2014 in the Donbass and Crimea, what role do you think that invasion played in the kind of renaissance and changes of the military? For many years, the military was treated in the way that we didn't have any enemies. So from the east, we had Russia, who was believed to be like brotherhood country, like a friendly country. And from the West, uh, where the NATO, again, friendly military and political alliance played. And people believed that the military probably is not something worse to be sustained. But in 2014, everyone realized that having friends around doesn't mean that you are protected and you need to have your well-trained and equipped military and motivated law enforcement just for country to sustain in the threat from outside and sometimes inside. Because we do remember that everything started with inspiration by Russia inside Ukraine and then turned into invasions in uh, and occupying uh, certain territories. What you're describing is that Ukraine essentially had friendly relations with both its Russian neighbor to the east in NATO countries to the West. And now, obviously, in the years or months leading up to Maidan, there was a sense among the Ukrainian people that, you know, they wanted to become closer to Europe. They wanted to become closer to the free countries and liberal countries of the West. But there was still a sense that they could do that while maintaining friendly relations with Russia, which, you know, as you pointed out, people saw as a brother country. So what do you think led to the break? Did the Russian people not have similar views of Ukraine? Was there something else going on? How do you explain the rise in hostilities and the ultimate invasion by Russia of Ukraine in 2014? I wouldn't compare people of Ukraine and people of Russia because I believe that we have different sense of how we should live. And if in Russia they have this need to have a strong Tsar, to have someone to rule, in Ukraine and two Maidans, the Orange Revolution and Maidan, two very pictureful characteristics that Ukrainians want to rule their lives themselves. And both times, the cause of the people's unrest was Yanukovych, who is now very well seen was a puppet of Putin. So coming back to today, in Ukraine, you have many hundreds of thousands of civilians who have volunteered to join the territorial defense forces. Some of these people are veterans, while others have never held a gun before. That's a unique combination, you know, perhaps a challenging one. It's certainly one that the U.S. military is unfamiliar with. Folks who fight in the American military are 
professional volunteer soldiers, and we have a set of reservists. But in Ukraine, obviously, you are in the midst of an unprecedented situation. Tell me a little bit about what that experience is of having the Ukrainian professional military fighting side by side with hundreds of thousands of civilians. I would like to start actually with referring to the U.S. experience in 2008 when uh, the Russian troops invaded Georgia. And what I heard from the news that when people in the U.S. got that piece of news, they many of them took the guns and went to the state of Georgia because they believed that it was about Georgia in the U.S. So uh, <laughs> you've got the same spirit as Ukrainians and you've got the same readiness to stand by your country. Although uh, perhaps not the same sense of geography. The same pronunciation. <laughs> For the territorial defense, is a very good uh, example is uh, my, my brother. He has zero military experience. All his military experience is talking to me. When Russia invaded uh, Ukraine on 24th uh, of February, he called me and said that he would uh, like to become a defender. And he was asking my advice, uh, what is the best unit actually to join, to be a soldier, to be a defender of Ukraine? I advised him to join, to start with joining the territorial defense unit of the city where he lives, just to get experience in holding weapons before engaging into battle, just to get any sort of military experience. So he went to the unit. By the way, his name is Bogdan, so like uh, given by God is translated into English, and uh, he went to the Territorial Defense Unit and he witnessed uh, a huge line of volunteers to that unit. He managed to enroll, and eventually the number of people willing to become members of Territorial Defense pretty much outnumbered the capacity of the unit to feed people. My brother enrolled. My brother uh, received uh, his rifle, and right now he's getting his training into uh, like firing small arms and defending his uh, position. Very good experience when you have in the unit like a combination of veterans and brand new people to the military, because the veterans, they can... Um, facilitate in the faster training so they can tell little tricks that can save your life or make some military drills even easier. And eventually in the battle, they can literally save your life because people who never was under shelling or in the clashes, they feel it in a kind of romance way but they believe it's something glorious or cool, but there is nothing glorious and cool. It's about death and blood. As I think about what it must be like to go from living in a comfortable European city one moment to having to carry a gun and think about what it's like to live under shelling the next... It's just such a surreal concept to me as someone who is an unbelievably lucky to be living, you know, comfortably on the Upper West Side in New York. When I think many analysts in the American intelligence services, certainly the analysts in Putin's military, they all assumed that when the Russian army would roll on into Ukraine, Ukraine would fall very quickly and they would be taking Kiev within just a couple of days. 
And now, obviously, that didn't happen. And it didn't happen for any number of reasons. But I think one of the most powerful ones has been the will of the Ukrainian people to stand up and defend themselves and to have folks like your brother volunteer to go and defend their homes, even not having had military experience. And I wonder if you can say a little bit more about why it is you think that so many people were so wrong about Ukraine's ability and willingness to defend itself. Ukraine is not the richest country in the world. To earn some money to have your own apartment, to have your goods just to settle yourself, you need to work hard and long. But we are hardworking and very nice people, and it's very difficult to lose it. Talking about my brother and talking about other guys, I refer to 2014-2015 when the heavy battles were taking place in Donbass. And from my personal observation, the best fighters so like all the Ukrainian soldiers, the mobilized ones, volunteers, regular forces, they did perfect job and they were fighting furiously. But the best, not soldiers, but the hardest soldiers were were people whose units were in the closest vicinity, in the closest to Donbass, because they saw what Russia had done in Donbass, and they didn't want to have the same in uh, their cities. I mean, Zaporizhia, Dnipro, and other places. Today, Russia invaded Ukraine from three directions. And today, there is no place in Ukraine that is remote from this conflict. And everyone stands and fights for his family, for his home, for his savings, for his style of life. Nobody wants anybody, especially occupiers, to come over and to tell you what to do or what not to do. And even today... Like when I had a chance, uh, I just watched what was happening in the city of Kherson. Kherson is occupied, temporarily controlled by Russia. And what I was seeing that people came out of their homes with Ukrainian flags on their shoulders and they were shouting, Russia, go home. We don't want any Russian soldiers to be in the streets. So that's the spirit of people. They don't want anybody to come over and to destroy their homes or either to tell them what to do. And what was the cause of Orange Revolution? It was a turn to Russia. What was the cause of Maidan? It was a turn to Russia. What was the cause of 24th of February? Again, it was that Ukraine was actually getting father and father from uh, control of uh, Russia. And by this particular offense, they are trying to pull us back. And the Ukrainians, they are not afraid to stand and say no. I could not think of a more powerful summation. I mean, here in the West, in, in the US, when we talk about defending democracy, for so many of us, it's theoretical. You know, democracy is this ideal, is this idea and, you know, something that can be written about, something that can be discussed, but not something that we risk our lives for. And yet, for you and other Ukrainians, you are essentially a free Western country that is literally on the front lines of freedom, that's in a position right now where you have no choice 
but to defend your democracy, not with words or rhetoric, but with your lives. And I think that's something that's incredibly powerful because I don't believe that what's happening in Ukraine is just about Ukraine. I think that what's happening in Ukraine is about defending democracy and freedom as an idea, as an international idea. And it's something that clearly a dictator like Putin finds to be very threatening to have a successful democracy on his border. And so with that, all I can say is that I think we have to be grateful to you, to your brother, and to the countless other people who are risking their lives, whether they're professional soldiers or civilians who are learning how to make Molotov cocktails. So actually, many people on the West are thinking of the best possible ways for us to support the Ukrainian fight for their own freedom and democracy. But as you know, NATO countries have thus far refused to implement a no-fly zone for fear of provoking World War III and engaging in a nuclear conflict with Putin. How would you respond to those people? Ukraine is a very strong nation and Ukrainian military is a very strong military. And we can beat the enemy that uh, threatens Europe and Western values on the ground and we can defend our shore. What is very difficult for us and we are struggle is to defend Ukraine and of course the nuclear plants and some key infrastructure facilities from the sky. So far our air force and anti-missile systems they manage to defend at least Kyiv and Kyiv seems to be so far okay from the sky but the rest of Ukraine is under the fire and we don't know how long it may last and for us it's critical to receive a strong word from the international community that at least the sky can be turned into the no-fly zone so make the ukrainian sky and the sky of europe safer so what many western countries have said to that to the idea of a no-fly zone is that it would require direct contact between NATO pilots and Russian pilots, which in turn has the potential to lead to a nuclear conflict between countries like the US and Russia, which obviously is something that I think everybody is incredibly afraid of and trying to avoid. So how would you respond to those folks? I mean, do you think that a no-fly zone is possible without a threat of nuclear war? Is there something the West can do short of a no-fly zone, short of sending NATO pilots to patrol the skies over Kiev and the rest of Ukraine that you think would make a difference in supporting the Ukrainian fight? The city of Kharkiv is well known and I do believe that loved in the world. And today it's destroyed. It was turned into the ruins by the rockets and plane bombings. The city of Okhterka is a new city hero introduced yesterday by the president. It was ruined by the rockets and planes. And many other cities, and even yesterday we had a strike at the city of Vinica. And we need to understand that Russia is not targeting military facilities, is not targeting the military units. It's about to destroy the sometimes even the critical 
and strategic infrastructure facilities and just devastate the land. If this is a price for like what I can comment, so probably the values, they are not as much appreciated by the politicians that they declare actually freedom, democracy, free will, and the life of people, probably it's not that appreciated by the politicians as they state. Well, Colonel, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. I hope that you remain safe in the coming days, and I wish you and the people of Ukraine all the luck in the world. And not, and not just luck, but the support of the West. Thank you very much. I wish everyone to have peace. Thank you.